0: We are in the last two weeks of our Hosea study, and it's finally here, and that we have a bit of reprieve from the onslaught of bringing up issue after issue that Israel has been living out. Hosea is about to remind Israel that you were not born for this, and even though we are literally 30 seconds into the sermon, this is a gospel truth that Hosea starts with, a gospel truth, one rooted in the gospel. Rooted in the truest of truths. A truth, I would say, is foundational to the creation of this world, to the creation of us, to the creation of me, to the creation of who you are. The imago Dei. The breathed truth. That we are created good. The breath that God gives us is good. When God created man and woman, he said it is good. Now this might not be news to you, but on the other hand, there has been a gospel preached throughout the history of the American church that you were created evil, tainted from the beginning, no choice to be but fallen, a worm of a human, nothing but dirty, dirty sinners in the hand of an angry God. And if you've been around me long enough, I have brought up the album Curse Your Branches by David Bazan probably to you. David Bazan was the former frontman of a band named called Pedro the Lion, which had its own evolution in the the indie Christian music scene. Eventually, the weight of a theology that was given to him made him leave his faith. He wrote the album Curse Your Branches as a divorce letter to the Christian church. Ironically, the year it came out, it made Christianity's today's top 100 albums because of the vulnerability that David Bazan expressed. In an interview he did with the podcast The Liturgist, he talked about a formidable moment with his daughter when she was born. She was perfect to him. And to think that all of the theology that had been given to him told him that she was a dirty, rotten sinner did not line up. She was an innocent infant, and yet he was told to believe in something completely different than the truth that he saw before him. He could not hold these two in tension, and that's when he began his exit from the church. I say all of this because I wanted to bring up the title song from the uh, album Curse Your Branches, the song Curse Your Branches. There is a lyric that captures Bizon's tension with a notion of being born sinners and thus never giving us an option otherwise. He sings in this song, Digging up the root of my confusion, If no one planted it, how did it grow? And why are some so hell-bent upon there being an answer, while some are quite content to answer I don't know? All fallen leaves should curse their branches, for not letting them decide where they should fall, and not letting them refuse to fall at all. I feel like this hits at a tension that leads us into the beginning of Hosea and one of the struggles that we face in the modern evangelical church. We are told so young that we were born sinners in such a way that it seems that when God knitted us together in our mother's womb, he knitted us with sin. That even before we take our first breath, we're damned creatures. I don't believe that theology is actually true. I think that we stand I think that the way we think of sin is under the way that sin should be understood is way more complicated than just a state given to us without a choice. And in fact, sin as the Jews would have understood it at this time and as Paul even talks about it in his letter is more of a generational or family sin. it is not something that you did, rather it's carried in the blood sin passed down by generation to generation. So at the state of birth, it's not something that we do that makes us a sinner by birth. Rather, the child baby does no action to cause the sin to develop, but it's just in their blood passed down. I'm spending time here because I believe that it's important to understand that when God knitted us together in our mother's womb, when God breathed life into us, when we are created at that moment, we are holy good, and whole. I want to say that again. When God breathes that life into us, when that Imago Day is transferred into us, at that moment, we are holy, good, and whole. Despite any sin in our blood or our mother's blood, our father's blood, we are created good. Despite that generational sin, we are created good. I am not discounting sin, I'm not discounting the sins of our father or our mother, but rather what I'm trying to say is the sins of our father and of our mother do not define us from the womb. Do not define us from corroboration. Do not define us from who God created us to be and who God is by inviting us into his goodness. All of this serves as a backdrop to the opening of Hosea, where God akins his relationship with Israel to one liking like a father who watches his child grow. He reminds them of their origin story. Out of Egypt, I called you, he says in the opening verses. This this act of calling them out of Egypt is such a simple act, but it's also the beginning of the story of Israel's journey to the promised land. It's Israel's journey to becoming the chosen people. They, had, they have religious holidays out of remembrance of this just this very act. In fact, their high holy day of Passover is a whole night of reteaching and retelling the story using song and food and wine. Being called out of Egypt is a core memory to the people of Israel, and God is reminding them. Remember that event. That was an act of love. Remember what I did for you? That just serve as a reminder that I still love you and that I'm for you. And he he says, what do I get in response for this? That I called you out of Egypt, so what did you do in return? Well, you went after other gods, these other Baals. God is using Hosea to be extra poetic at this moment. I called you out, and then you called to these other gods. I saved you from slavery, and you desire to return back to slavery. But then the Lord continues his imagery as father in verses 3 and 4. Verses three, Starting with verse 3, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with bands of human kindness, with cords of love. I treated them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. The Hebrew for what the Lord is saying here, I took them up in my arms. It's close to the idea of watching a toddler walk and walking kind of like beside them, like with your arms ready to catch them if they fall. This imagery is God is saying to Israel, like I allowed you to walk on your own and I provided these hands of safety to surround you if you were to ever falter. And that's a good illusion for the Old Testament, right? God is allowing Israel to walk to make its mistakes and providing safety for them for when they fall. God is trying to remind Israel that despite all of the harsh words that God has offered up to this point, he still thinks fondly of them. He still remembers them as a child that he bent down to feed. Even though I've put you on blast for the last 10 chapters, I still love you. And I wish this is a message that we could receive in the American church sometimes. So many times it's like our churches choose one or the other. We choose the sword of the gospel to use fear to make converts. Or we choose to make us uh, use the gospel of fear to make converts or to make us follow the laws that the church dictates. Or we choose a gospel that has no rightful condemnation and thus no justice. See, we need both. We need both sides of the prophet's words. We need all of Hosea. We, we need the condemnation to remind us not to get caught up in who we are and what we're doing, to make sure that we're living for others and not just for ourselves. But we also need God reminding us that no matter what actions we take, God still loves us. He still walks with us, ready to catch us when we fall. God offers this to Ephraim, to Judah, and to Israel, and to, continues to offer them to that uh to us today. It's not a life that is easy. God tells Israel, but it's a life worth living. It's not a life full of condemnation and judgment, but it's a life worth living. God continues his reminder of Israel and his deep love for them in verses 8 through 10. How could I give you up Ephraim? How could I hand you over Israel? How could I make you like Adama? Or how could I treat you like Zebon? My heart winces within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I, I I won't act on the heat of my anger. I won't destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a human being. The Holy One in your midst, I won't come in harsh judgment. They will walk after the Lord who roars like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. My heart Winces within me, he says in verse 8, my compassion grows warm and tender. This is not the Old Testament God we commonly think of, right? The old smite, fire, and brimstone, the hands of the angry God. Instead, we have a God who says his heart winces within him, his compassion grows warm and tender. That is the same God who looks down on you and me. His heart winces within him. And his compassions grow warm and tender. We see this as Jesus offers that parable of the shepherd who goes after his sheep. Leaving the 99 to go seek the one because his heart winces within him. His compassion grows warm and tender. When the Lord looks for you and for me, his heart winces, grows warm and tender. And this is important because once again, the Lord is telling Israel that his love for them goes beyond their even their own understanding. In fact, you hear that in verse 9. I won't act on the heat of my anger. I won't destroy Ephraim for I am God and not a human being as God once again recognizes that God's logic does not make sense to humans' mind, which is a comfort because there's a tension that you read in Hosea. God has spent the last six chapters saying that he is going to destroy Ephraim, that he is going to destroy Israel and Judah, that he is going to do all of these terrible things because of their actions. God will give them over to destruction. But then in verse 11, it seems like he's saying otherwise. Saying and then saying I don't need to make sense. And I think actually, to quote another person who spoke on the behalf of God, he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you have your mind on the things of men and not on the things of God. That person was a carpenter named Jesus. But what I'm trying to say here is there's this tension in between what people believe should justice looks like and what God says justice will look like for him. God says that, you know what, there are is destruction coming for you because of your actions, but that does not negate my love for you. That does not change that my heart winces and grows in compassion for you. I have tenderness towards you and yet judgment as well. God ends chapter 11 saying that the Assyrians are still coming to overtake Israel. But you need to know, Israel, that you will not be overtaken. That your enslavement to Assyria will not be the end of your story. I am still with you and I will not let you be destroyed. Now, chapter 12. It begins in a familiar familiar uh, phrase. It says, Ephraim is chasing the wind. Now, for those of you who are part of our NCKC study on Ecclesiastes, you know that this phrase is central to the message of Ecclesiastes. And serves as a reminder that sometimes the things we choose to do is chasing the wind. Something you can never grasp. It just goes through your fingers. Something that you can actually never capture. Because the wind goes from the west to the east to all around the world to come back again. How would you ever be able... To grab it. See, Hosea is actually making a very rare reference to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes isn't referenced very much in the Old Testament. But he's saying, Ephraim, you are much like what the writer of Ecclesiastes warned about. Getting caught up chasing after things that will slip through your fingers. Things that will not fulfill you. And it is just as pointless as chasing the wind. Our Old Testament... Lesson continues when Hosea brings up Jacob. Jacob, And we all know Jacob's own struggles throughout the Old Testament, starting from the womb where he grabbed onto Esau's heel while coming out of the womb. His struggles to live within a foreign nation, to wrestling with an angel, where he gets renamed to Israel. And why Hosea brings this up is to some of why God brought up Egypt earlier. God is trying to remind the listeners, the people listening to Hosea, Use your forefathers as warning. Learn from their lessons. Just as Jacob struggled on the riverbanks and found out what it meant to be a man of God, what it meant to be Israel, that this is what Israel, the country, must now struggle with as well. God, through Hosea, addresses Israel, the country, directly in verse 6 reminding them similarly to where we ended last week. He says, but you, this is what Hosea was saying, but you return to your God with faithful love and justice and wait continually for your God. This is actually noted in the Hebrew room, that there is that change in perspective. It's very stark. Hosea was addressing people listening and then all of a sudden it's this direct command, but you Return to your God with faithful love and justice and wait continually for your God. I feel like I could just end the sermon there, right? Once again, with this call to the American church, but you, American church, return to your God with faithful love and justice and continually wait. For your God, return to your God with faithful love, love that is faithful to God and not to the things of man. Justice, justice that is faithful to God and not to the things of man. Not to just return to your God for a moment, for when the cameras are on or for when you get caught, not when the story gets broken or when the negative thing happens in our streets, but to seek God continually not just in the moments that matter. But I won't be faithful to the story of Hosea, of God, if I ended my sermon here, because that's not what happens with Israel, right? They're still offered harsh words. As a reminder, God's punishment is still waiting in the wings. And I need to remind the American church that maybe we are in a time of punishment for our own idols and Baals that we have sought Verse 8 of chapter 12 resonates with this. Ephraim said, "I'm rich. I've gained wealth for myself, in all of my gain, no offense has been found in me that would be sin. Once again, Ephraim claims that richness as a sign that they are without sin. If we are things are going well for them, well that must mean that God favors them and that they are without sin. And Hosea is reminding them, those words are empty. As God says, they are whitewashed tombs. A brood of vipers. Just because they have wealth does not mean that that wealth won't be taken away from them. After all, that's one of the message of Ecclesiastes is that wealth is fleeting and not necessarily a sign that God is with you because of how fleeting it can be. Wealth can be taken away. And wasted and spent, but God's goodness cannot. God reminds them that He can return to them living in tents, being nomadic people once again, having the dangers of the desert, being people in an exile. God reminds you that I can make you people of the tent again. God reminds them once again about Jacob and his struggles with finding his life in the trickery of Laban. God reminds them of Laban. I'm sorry. I don't know why I did that. God reminds them once again about the slavery of Egypt and how he had to send a prophet to guard them, that prophet being Moses to watch over them. God says all of this because he is reminding Ephraim that there is a time coming that their destruction will serve as a warning to the Israel. It will be a chapter in the sordid history of Israel so that they become a line for other prophets to use to remind others not to make the same mistakes that they're making now. Because what is the past if not something that we should be learning presently from? I'm going to say that again because I think it's important. Because what is the past if not something that we should be presently learning from? from so we're getting close to finishing our study and I want to ask what have we learned from our own mistakes of the past how have we turned a blind eye to the stories of our forefathers and our past mistakes in the American church how have we looked at our current circumstances our current riches to proclaim God's love for us instead of looking back and seeing if God is really with us have we spent time researching our past Telling the stories of our past. And not just our past, as in our direct past. But ours as the church. Have we listened to the stories of the black church, the Latino church, the inner city church, and the rural church? Have we spent time learning their stories so that we don't become like Ephraim? Who boasted wealth while forgetting their forefathers? I can't, but I can't help but take a breath here. and feel like I'm breathing recycled air air spent by those hundreds of years ago before us, wondering what the church of their present will look like when it becomes the church of the past, wondering if we are repeating the same mistakes and not learning from our past, and if our children will have learned from us. Are we, like Israel, wandering the desert, setting high holy days to retell the stories to our children in hopes that it will stick with them? Are we, like Israel, hoping that generational sin will be the only sin that we carry? Are we, like Israel, in the face of our own destruction, are we spending time not looking within, but looking at our own riches and wealth or our desire to blame others? I really do want to love the American church. I do. Much like Hosea's call to love Gomer, I want to be able to drop everything that has happened and open my heart and love her again. Hosea, Gomer, God, Israel, myself, and the American church. God reminded us last week to sow righteousness so that we may reap faithful love. God remind us This week, to return to our God with faithful love and justice and continually wait for you, God. God, remind us that since you have not given up on me, I should give the same grace to those I find along my way, including the American church and those who have called to lead it. May I find the grace received so that it may be the grace given. May I find the grace received so it may be the grace given. Be blessed this week. Please remember to wash your hands.